Hello, hello. Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library of books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. In keeping with Halloween weirdness, this week's book of the week is Aleister Crowley, Magic, Rock and Roll, and the Wickedest Man in the World by Gary Lackman. And accompanying cocktail comes to us from another book, this one called Spirits of the Other World, a grimoire of occult cocktails by Alison Krabuck and Reese Everett. And this particular cocktail is called Devil's Disciple, after Crowley himself. It is one ounce of dry gin, a half ounce of dry vermouth, poppy liqueur, absinthe, lemon juice, egg white, and you can garnish it with lemon zest and poppy. So let's do this. This one's kind of a complicated cocktail. I also had to do a substitution because I couldn't find poppy liqueur in time. So I'm using, what the hell am I using? Gentian liqueur. I get why the poppy, the poppy is because the man is a heroin addict and poppy is definitely a direct tie into that. But gentian is what I found. So gentian is what we're using. This book was mostly a biography of Crowley himself. Uh, no, no, not, not, not that Crowley. Nope, not that Crowley either. Um, there you go. So it's told by someone who studied Crowley. First his works magically, and which Lackman studied as an acolyte in the late 70s and the 80s. And then also by the, about the man himself researching Crowley's biography and history. Then he kind of wove the two stories together and included a final chapter on how Crowley was essentially revitalized posthumously, first by, a bi by the biography by John Simons, and then by the countercultural revolution of the 60s and 70s. I'm doing one ounce of dry gin. They actually had specific like gins and everything that were all devil related. I'm going with what I had on hand, so there we go. Starting at the beginning. Aleister Crowley was born Edward Alexander Crowley on October 12, 1875 in Royal Leamington Spa, Warwickshire, England. His parents were Edward Crowley and Emma Bertha Crowley, nee Bishop. Edward Crowley and by descent Edward Alexander were inheritors of Crowley's Alton Ales, which is a very successful brewery business in the late 19th century. However, while they were certainly in the bar trade. Crowley Sr.'s passion was his church, the Plymouth Brethren, which were kind of a fundamentalist Christian church who believed the literal Bible. So they would be the ones here in America who think, you know, Adam and Eve were 6,000 years ago and um, dinosaurs never happened, all of that stuff. So they, they were fundamentalists. And that's where, how Crowley was essentially being raised. Now, most biographers claim that Crowley's later proclivities were a direct result of this ultra-religious upbringing and that he was trying to rebel against that, against the repression of having grown up in this fundamentalist church. Crowley Sr. was a preacher for the church and he used the family alehouses as kind of a pulpit from which to preach. And the patrons didn't mind, all right? They tended to also be Plymouth Brethren. And Crowley Sr. was quite popular. Crowley Jr. was his kind of miniature incarnate, right? Just definitely seems weird. Um, but, I mean... But it certainly seems logical, right? Most people, or not most people, a lot of people who go the opposite extreme were found to have grown up in these ultra-religious households. And so it's common belief to say, oh, well, they were just rebelling against those restrictions. But as the author points out, Crowley grew up quite rich, right? He wasn't repressed in any way. He was pretty much allowed to do whatever the heck he wanted. 
he just had to go to all all of his father's sermons and everything, but there was nothing wrong with that because he actually quite liked his father. He he was his father in miniature. Popular core. How much popular core? How did I not get that in there? Hold on. Thank God I have the book right here. I can look it up. A half ounce of the popular core. There we go. Sorry. So he's following his father around and he's granted his every whim and he's listening to everything his father says and follow, following in the, in the family footsteps. And then, but for me, the most likely, and this like literally leapt off the pages, I'm like, how did nobody draw this connection before? I, I, I mean, seriously, nobody, okay, I can't say nobody did because I haven't read all the Crowley biographies out there, but this seemed really obvious to me from this one. Um, when Crowley was 11, his father, who he adored, contracted cancer of the tongue and died soon after. And he was unable to preach the word of God who he loved as he was dying because of this cancer on his tongue. So I, and from that moment, like from the time his father died, Crowley embraced the darkness. He, he went to the opposite side, went full Satanist, whatever you want to call it. I think his rebellion had less to do with his religious upbringing and more with the sudden and cruel loss of his father. I think the manner of his father's death struck him as capricious and what kind of loving God would visit that on a loyal follower. And if God could do that, then Crowley could reject God and embrace Satan. And that's my armchair psychology take on it. It's probably a fairly logical assumption to make, even though I'm pretty sure Crowley was a full bore sociopath, but sociopaths have people that they regard kind of hard to say they care for, but they have people they regard, and he certainly regarded well his father. And he spent the rest of his life as a confirmed hedonist and libertine, um, coining the phrase which would become his lifelong motto, do what thou wilt." The and at harm none part was added, later added by Wiccans. Probably they distanced themselves from Crowley. I mean, he was not a nice man by basically any metric. I mean, he, he sucked. He was just an awful human being. Uh, it's supposed to be like three dashes of absinthe. I don't have any way to do three dashes. So we're going to... That's probably more absinthe than I should have had. Oof. That wormwood. I think I just figured out why it should be popular core because the cocktail in the book is red and there's no way in hell this is going to be red. The only color in there is the green from the absinthe. So we'll see how this goes. I did. It's supposed to be three dashes. Wow, I did a shit job typing up this recipe. So, shit, where the hell was I? Crowley and his mother, shortly after his father's death, relocated to London and to his uncle on his mother's side house, Tom Bishop. And Tom Bishop became Crowley's legal guardian, enrolling him in school in London, where Crowley kind of discovered the joys of masturbation. Yep. There's a lot of sex in this book. Not explicit. It's, it's not like they're going, oh, and then he did this, and the hot, throbbing, mm, whatever. No, it was more of a clinical explanation, but there kind of has to be a lot of sex in a book about the man who invented sex magic. So Crowley also, while he was living in London, discovered a passion for mountain climbing. Um, he was very good at this, climbing some of the hardest mountains in his day, not all the way to the peak. Um, it, it just, like all things, humankind gets better at it as, as uh, life goes on. Half ounce of lemon juice. But still, it was one of his passions and something he was good at, something he became well known for. People knew that he was a mountain climber and that he was capable of, of doing these things. And he actually, he went on several expeditions, leading at least one, although the one he led did not go well because he was really not a good leader of men. Ooh, did that backwards. 
egg white means it has to be cracked over the thing you're making, Katrina. Not oh, son of a bitch. You'll be strained out. I don't want the eggshell in there. It's a mess. A hot mess today. All right, this gets shaken together, so I'm gonna shake this. We're supposed to, to strain it with a Hawthorne strainer. I do not have a Hawthorne strainer, so we're just gonna do this. And you're supposed to double shake it once in the original one and then dry shake with no ice on the second shake. So we're just gonna get all of this shaking done first. Could technically grab some food coloring, but I don't feel like that's really necessary. In 1895, he adopted the name Alistair, preferring that over Edward Alexander or the nickname Alec, which is what he was called. And he used Alistair to the end of his life. In 1896, on his 21st birthday, he came into his inheritance, which was an amount of about 40,000 pounds sterling, which in 2022 dollars would be about $5 million. $5 million does not last a lifetime when one does not work and one does not do anything to grow that fortune like investing. And investing was definitely a thing back in the uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries. Well, I mean, other than the color, it looks like the cocktail in the book. I should throw up a picture of the cocktail in the book. But I mean, there's the, that's what it looks like. It should definitely be red. That would be the look Poppy look for. Oh, well. There was like an eight to 10 week delivery for mail order on the Poppy liqueur, And I was like, mm, I ain't gonna fly. He only spent, spent, spent. That's all he did. Never did anything to grow his fortune, preserve his money, never worked a day in his life. He just spent, spent, spent. Um, the, uh, incidentally, this spend, spend, spend is also why most people who win the lottery are back at work within five years. Uh, by 1898, Crowley had self-published several of his works and was initiated into the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. This, incidentally, began a lifelong habit of destruction. Uh, not his, of course, uh, but rather everyone and everything he came into contact with tended to fall to literal shit after contact with Crowley. And the Order of the Golden Dawn did not survive Crowley's inclusion into the order, collapsing in 1903. And there's some indication in the book that Crowley's um, manipulations and backstabbing and just general unpleasant disposition contributed to that downfall. Uh, it fell long before Crowley could actually complete his learning. That is all shades of not awesome. Kind of sour and bitter. On the flip side, that's probably exactly like the man himself. Sour and bitter. I'll go with that. But while he was there, uh, he rubbed elbows with such occult thought leaders as William Butler Yeats, Arthur Mackin, William Westcott, Florence Farr, none of whom seemed to like Crowley and the dislike was absolutely mutual. Now, during this time, Crowley also began reading Richard von Kraft Ebing's Psychopathia Sexualis, which was a 19th century kind of para, uh, paraphilia. Yeah, I think that's the word I'm looking for, paraphilia. Uh, a book on paraphilias, right? These are all the different ways that people find pleasure in sex. He got into that and became immersed in sadomasochism enjoying both the giving and receiving of pain, but re preferring to receive. Uh, he, he liked his women not, strictly speaking, dominant, but capable of humiliating him and bossing him around. It's, it's very weird, very weird. Uh, not that there's anything weird about that, it's weird about the man himself, because he liked to dominate his women, but wanted to be dominated in the bedroom. He was just just, I don't know, there's a whole lot going on with this guy. He, he was a bizarro world. I kind of want to read John Simons because I feel like the description of John Simons or autobiography of him is that he just, or not, not, not a biography, he did all the interviews with Crowley and then basically just used Crowley's own words 
to reveal the man himself, I feel like this would be informative. But let's keep going with this one. Um, this, incidentally, the, the learning that he enjoyed receiving pain would result in Crowley becoming bisexual, enjoying sex with women, uh, but preferring to be the woman himself when having sex with a man. Uh, sometimes even using this to coerce his partner to humiliate him, i.e. forcing his male partners into the act. Um, now remember, he was the one who was receiving the, the, the anal sex. So the guy basically just had to get it hard and go to town. He had to coerce him into it sometimes. I, I'm sure he had a couple of partners who were more than willing, but others, they, had, they did it under the guise of receiving mag magical instruction from him. Um, but that also is very sadistic, right? Trying to f essentially raping these guys, making them have sex with him when they didn't want to. But he considered, or they, he considered it part of the learning teaching curve. Just, there's so much wrong with this guy. Now, in 1903, he married for the first time. The sister of his friend, Gerald Kelly, uh, Rose Edith Kelly. The friendship with Kelly, I don't think, survived this. She got into a little bit of a scandal after agreeing to marry two men and then refusing to marry either one of them. She claimed she was pregnant. Her family gave her money for an abortion and said she bought clothes with it. So she was kind of a scandalous dame all on her own. Crowley showed up with Kelly, and while Kelly was calming down their parents, Crowley talked Rose into marrying him instead. He must have had some sort of weird magnetism. I really need to read Rasputin, too. <laughs> that would be a good one to read very soon, I think. Um, they were married for six years, and during that time, Crowley developed quite a bit of his belief, starting with Thelema, the belief that will is primary. And this is where his concept of do what thou willst was kind of dictated to him while he was on honeymoon by his guide, guiding spirit, I was. I'm probably mispronouncing that. During this time, he also wrote the Book of Law, uh, using his new spouse as his scarlet woman, which is basically an exceptionally loose woman. Not sure how a wife could be considered a loose woman, although maybe her previous scandal of written history led to that. But she was kind of his inspiration. I mean, he was inspired by sex. So she told him, you need to be writing at this time. Your guardian angel will show up. And so he did. And that's where we get the Book of Law from. Um, Rose, within a year, was pregnant and returned from Egypt to Europe, where Rose gave birth to their first child, a daughter named Nut Ma Ahathor Hecate Safo Jezebel Lilith. Told you he was a sadist too, right? <laughs> what the hell? Um, that poor child did not last childhood. I think she died of, of she had caught like pneumonia or something while they were on a trip and died. All right, let's, let's, yeah, it's not awesome. And with that, Crowley dove headfirst into living the Thelemic lifestyle, which care, and he cared very little for his reputation or for the rumors that spread about him. Jaunting off around the globe, spending 20 years climbing mountains, studying magic, creating a lot of it as he went, clothing himself with this image of a worldly magician. He literally traveled around the globe, burning through his inherited fortune, ultimately ending up at Cephalu, uh, which was a, like a rock island in Italy, living in an abandoned abbey there, which he christened the Abbey of Thelema, with his latest scarlet woman, uh, Leah, and his other girlfriend, Nanette, having children with each of them. I think ultimately in his lifetime he had five children, I think. There may have been more, but five we know of. Of the women in his life, at least three of them ended up alcoholics, including his first and third, uh, second wife. He only married twice. First and second wives. Leah went through a stint, but ultimately managed to get herself cleaned up after she broke from Crowley. Um, incidentally, she didn't break from him. He just basically abandoned her one day. 
And when she realized he wasn't coming back, she got her shit together. I think she went on to become a teacher. Crowley himself devolved into a drug and alcohol addicted haze. Um, writing the book that he's probably most well known for, which is Diary of a Drug Fiend, uh, which was published in his lifetime, literally, but not widely read, given that the author's own infamy at the time, many booksellers refused to even carry it. They're like, Crowley? No, we want nothing to do with that guy. And he really had nobody but himself to blame. He had never done anything to curry his own image other than to be ultimately recognized as the wickedest man alive. In 1923, he was ejected from Italy by Mussolini, who did not want someone so infamous and cult-like living in his country. And from there, he kind of bounced around from France to Tunisia to Germany to England, living off the graces of friends and other benefactors, finally landing in Hastings, England, where he died on December 1st, 1947. Now, obviously, this is a short, short version of the 346-page book. The entire story was Crowley's history, interwoven with his magical beliefs and workings, rounded out with the late 20th, early 21st century impact he has had on culture. And while the work was written from the perspective of a Crowleyite, and I am fair, certainly faithful in my own way, right? I mean, hello, I got Loki, I got the Morrigan here, I'm a you know, switch hitter with my beliefs and my gods, but Crowley comes across as extremely narcissistic and a genuine sociopath. Um, you now, apparently he has an opinion about that. I mean, he lived his life as a hedonist and a libertine. I'm frankly surprised he didn't claim to be the reincarnation of Marquis de Sade. I mean, he claimed to be several reincarnations of other things. Marquis de Sade didn't hit his radar. Don't know why. Let's break that down a little. So narcissism is a self-centered personality style characterized as having excessive interest in one's physical appearance or image and an excessive preoccupation with one's own needs, often at the expense of others. Um, the... He didn't care about his social image, but he did want, did cultivate this image of being very magically, mystically powerful. That's the image he wanted to cultivate. That's what he went with. Now, the traits of a sociopath. Um, these are, are I, I, I'll see, I'll find the article I linked. I pulled this from. This is off of the um, internet, but I feel like this is all pulled from the DSM-5 but it's a lack of empathy for others, little to no genuine remorse, the manipulation of other people, lying and deceit, a sense of superiority over others, little to no regard for right or wrong, the belief that rules do not apply to them, getting into legal trouble or a little or with little regard for the law, lack of responsibility, engaging in irresponsible behaviors, aggression or hostility and the exploitation of other people. Literally every single one of these traits is explored in spades in this book. I mean, I don't think I'm wrong with an armchair psychology diagnosis of sociopath. Just crazy. I mean, he had the substance abuse. Uh, he, he was an alcoholic. He had such a high dosage of heroin going in that it would have killed. Like if, if I, just having never used heroin in my life, were to take the dose he was using, it would immediately cause me to go into cardiac arrest and die. Cocaine. He actually had to have a nose job to rebuild the cartilage in his nose from his cocaine use. The alcoholism, all of that's there. He didn't care for either of his wives or any of the women he engaged with, seeing them as little more than receptacles for his seed. He showed no remorse for anything he did and excelled at manipulating people, lying and deceiving them to get his own way. He had this unparalleled sense of superiority. I mean, part of his beef with the Golden Dawn was his belief that they were not recognizing his greatness fast enough. He had no regard for right or wrong, believed the rules did not apply to him. 
He was evicted from several countries and residences for his actions and magic and unquestionably engaged in irresponsible behaviors, spending every penny he had or was given. He was aggressive towards anyone who questioned him and exploited anyone who ever tried to help him. And substance use. Like I said, diary of a drug fiend. This was autobiographical. This was his life. It's one of the few things he wrote that actually strikes a chord with people because there are drug addicts to this day, right? Now, a hedonist is one who is devoted to the pursuit of pleasure, someone who practices hedonism, right? If you're devoted to the pursuit of pleasure, do what thou wilt. Uh, that was his life. A libertine is a person who is devoid of most moral principles, a sense of responsibility or sexual restraints, which they see as unnecessary or undesirable, and is especially someone who ignores or even spurns accepted morals and forms of behaviors observed by the larger society. And those, there you go. Narcissist, hedonist, libertine, sociopath. There's a cocktail going on with this guy. I mean, Crowley was not a good man, but he never claimed to be. All right, to give him credit, he never said, hey, I'm a good guy just trying to, just trying to do the right thing. He never claimed to be a good man. And he was a sociopath who lived his best life and truly embraced this do-as-thou-willst mindset. And it later inspired a generation of artists and musicians. Um, I, I mean, we, we, he definitely had a contact with L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics can be seen to be a t- spinoff of the Thelemics. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard was in touch with his one of his other mystical orders, the Order Templi something or other, I don't know. But L. Ron Hubbard started there created Scientology. Way more successful. L. Ron was probably not quite the sociopath Crowley was. I haven't done any reading on L. Ron Hubbard, so I don't know. He wrote books, but frankly, I have found them unreadable. I, I have tried. They're just, to me, they're totally unreadable. Uh, his most known contribution is probably the Book of Thoth Tarot, for which he partnered with Lady Frida Harris to do the actual artwork, as Crowley himself was not much of an artist. I mean, he had pretensions to be, but that was, in his opinion, just another way in which his genius was unrecognized. Unfortunately, when the artwork for Book of Thoth was ready to display, attaching his name to it got the show shut down at the gallery. Such is the price of infamy. I do not like Aleister Crowley. I I thought he might be an interesting character to read about. Instead, I found he was psychotic. I think this book was well-written. I think it was well-researched. But even as a libertarian who pretty much believes the do-what-you-will mindset, adding in a non-aggression principle, so added harm none, I dislike this man. Um, He may or may not have been a magical genius, but he was unquestionably a sociopath. He destroyed everything and everyone he touched, and he died a pauper. And he literally was just living off of donations from people. The only reason we know who he is beyond tabloid reprints from the 19th century is a biography that was written by John Simons and I believe is still in reprint even to today. Uh, He pulled Crowley out of ignominy just before Crowley's death. And contributions to counterculture or not, Crowley is someone who should have died and remained in ignominy. Sadly, being a shit human being, more often than not, is a way to guarantee immortality of a sort. And that's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, hit that subscribe button. I will see you guys next week. Bye.